they're so fat, their eyes are just like bulging. And it's just, it's just a picture, metaphorically speaking, like when you have so much indulgence, it just keeps going and going and going. So they drink in abundance. They, their imaginations just run right. Whatever they dream of, they do. Look at their abundance, right? Now, you know what's really funny? Our generation, we love that stuff. I mean, we love the stuff. I mean, there is an entire show. I'm a little bit of a car buff, but there's an entire show called Jay Leno's Garage. You guys know about that? I know. Most of the guys are like, I know. It's like my dream, right? Like, I'm going to be honest. There are moments when I watch that thing. The guy has, I, got, I looked it up. Okay, he has 286 vehicles. Can you imagine that? 286 vehicles. He needs his own massive structure to house his cars. And then just recently, actually not too recently, but Celine Dion came on to that James Gordon's show, and she was doing the driving karaoke thing, and it, the YouTube video went out. But you know what's hilarious? She kind of started bragging about she has over 10,000 pairs of shoes, and she had a, as an automated closet that when she puts a, pushes a button, the shoe that she selects brings it over to her. That's crazy. <laughs> okay. But look at how many views that has. Millions. Right? We love this stuff. We love to see people in affluence. We love to see people like this. And I'm going to tell you what, if we're honest with ourselves, there is that little bitty green monster that starts to come out. I wish I had that. But take a moment to think about this. The moment you say, I wish I had it, that automatically means you believe it's good. Keep that in mind. Moving forward, notice how he sees their freedom. He sees they're free from pain. They're free from trouble. They're free from burden. There is no plague. There is no sickness. Right now, in this kind of atmosphere, people would love that, wouldn't they? To minimize all risk, that they're, they're rich enough, they're healthy enough, they're whatever enough, that they don't have to worry about the risks. Right? They don't have to run like everybody else. And people talk like this. They'll say, do you have financial freedom? And then you're just sitting there like, I want that. Right? Like, it just eggs you on to want the freedom that they have. I would love to have the freedom to not care and be able to take trips and travel left and right. Of course we would. And then it just goes on. They're proud. They just say whatever they want. I just imagine the NBA stars just pounding their chest like, yeah, I'm the man. Right? Like, that's, that's a little bit of what they do. They scream from the, the bleachers. They scream from everywhere. Like, look what I did. He said I couldn't do it. I proved them wrong. Right? And they say stuff like, I do what I do. And everyone's like, yeah, that guy's the man. Now, in our context at church, like, that would be hilarious, right? What if Pastor Simon came up here and was like, that's right, my sermon was the bomb. <laughs> I do what I do every Sunday. All of a sudden, you're like, disqualified. <laughs> it would be ridiculous. Funny thing is, we love it everywhere else. Okay, what am I talking about? If we're being honest, the things that we see here, the things that we see here are evident all around us. And if we're being very honest, the things that we see here are things, truthfully, we would like somewhere. I mean, I'm not saying that you're tempted with wanting mansions and 300 cars in your garage. I still can't imagine that. <laughs> you fit 300 cars anywhere. Okay, like... Anyway, um, the part about that is, if we're honest, there is a bit that says, okay, that might not be my dream, but it'd be nice. It'd be good. 
So let's read on. And once, once Asaph has a moment when he looks at them and he says, what? That's not fair. They have it so good. As soon as that thought enters into his head, look what happens, okay? So let's take a look at verse 13 through 16. Verse 13 through 16. So if verse 1 through 9 was the problem or what they saw, and I'm sorry, verse 1 through 12, verse 13 through 16, it shows his response. He goes, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Then I pondered to understand this, and it was troublesome in my sight. Take a moment to pause there. And if you're taking notes, label that the bitter judgment. The bitter judgment. Why? I hope you see what he's doing. He took a moment to see what's going on in the world. He took a moment to see the wicked people, all the proud. And immediately he looked up and then he looked down at himself. You see that? He looked up at them and said, oh, my gosh, this is not fair. They have it so good. And then he immediately looked at himself and he said, oh, my goodness, I'm worthless. Essentially, he has this comparison where he concludes of himself, all I have been doing so far is not so good. It sucks. Look what I've been doing. If you're taking notes, write the word vain. You know what vain means? Vanity means emptiness. Vanity means meaninglessness. It's worthless. That's what vanity means. It's just completely empty. And what he's saying is, as soon as I started to compare them and me, I looked at myself, and my life so far then was pointless. Why did I keep myself all holy? What was that for? Why did I wash my hands? What was that for? Why did I deprive myself of that stuff? What was that for? And as soon as we start asking these questions, like, what was that for? What was that for? We start having this judgment about our lives. I says, this is not fair. And you know, right now, I'm in a biblical counseling program. And as I've been doing that, I've been just case counseling many individuals who have depression. You will find in every individual who has been depressed, there's a moment when they judge themselves. I am not worth it. And they believe he thinks I'm not worth it. And they think I'm not worth it. My parents think I'm not worth it. And guess what? I believe it myself. I believe I'm not worth it. I don't know if any of you guys have ever been there. You need to hear this word today. Right? You need to hear this word today. This is not the kind of godly pity. This is not kind of a kind of godly sorrow. This is a troublesome problem for you. And some people I've seen resort to all kinds of vices to solve that. As soon as they realize, like, am I truly worthless? They'll start to go and, like, desensitize themselves. They're like veg on Netflix. They'll go and do this and they'll go and do that. And you and I very well know nothing else in this world except for what God has to offer is going to solve any of that. It's actually going to leave you even more high and dry. And take a look. look. Look down at that passage again. Look at the way he describes it. He literally says in that passage that the way he feels is he feels broken down. He feels like he's been stricken. He feels like he's been chastened. That's verse 14, right? He feels like he was oppressed. That's the way he feels. I want to ask you then this question. Have any of you guys ever felt like that? Right? 
Have any of you guys ever felt oppressed, beaten down, and that all your efforts were perhaps empty and perhaps useless? Have you guys ever gone to a point where that's led you to a sense of bitterness? You're like on edge and people try to come over and dig into your life. You're just like, no, right? And you're defensive. I've been there. I have, right? Especially because we regularly struggle in this way. We regularly struggle in this way. And you know what's crazy about this? He says, if I allowed myself to speak, oh, man, I would have betrayed your generations, right? You know what that means? He's saying, if he actually spoke what was in his heart, oh, man, that would have been bad, right? Because the stuff that is in his heart and was on the tip of his tongue were probably all the stuff of incredible bitterness and rage. Okay? Now, at that point, then, we've hit the end of the first section. What to do now? What do we do? Okay, what do we do? We move into the second section. Verse 17. I'm going to read verse 17, and then we're going to walk down the section. Verse 17 says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Can I tell you something, guys? Earlier I told you guys that in our lives, we're going to either operate by, by our sight or operate by God's truth. Yes? Well, I'm going to put it another way. In our lives, you're going to make judgment based on your wisdom or God's. Let me put it another way. In our lives, you're going to speak about yourself according to your own knowledge or you're going to speak God's truth. And can I say something to you guys? It's something both of an encouragement and a rebuke. Okay, encouragement and a rebuke. This is something that when I was in the kind of depths of like just struggling, a pastor kind of walked me through and it was so convicting. I said that there have been moments when I, I remember feeling so worthless, especially in moments when I just failed, right? And typically it was moments when, like, I was just running, doing my thing, doing my work, and then my wife would tap me on the shoulder and be like, hello, you have a family, right? And I'm like, you know? And my wife would be like, you know, I don't, I don't want to make you feel bad, but, man, you just really haven't been, like, playing the role of a husband. And then I just broke. I just started crying and crying and crying, and she was like, uh, sorry, like I, that's not what I was trying to do, right? Like, I'm just trying to encourage you, like, remember us, right? I'm just like, oh, I'm so sorry. But then the reason why I broke is because I felt like I was a miserable failure to my wife. I felt like I was a miserable failure to my kids. But I wasn't doing well at my job, and I wasn't doing well at my church. I just remember breaking and breaking and breaking, right? In that moment, I said this thing. I can't do this because I'm hopeless, right? Just remember those words. I can't do this because I'm hopeless. I want you to remind, remember something really important here. Remember, you're either going to judge yourself by you or God. Can you imagine? I'm just going to keep using you as an example. <laughs> All right. So he's here, right? Imagine he's super down. Imagine he's super down and he just says certain things like, I'm, I'm vain. Like, meaning, I'm, it's like my life is meaningless. I have no hope. I'm hopeless. Right? And I can't do this. Okay. He says that about himself. But think about this. What if I was his loving father? What if he was my nine-year-old kid? Now take those words that he said and put it into her mouth. And she comes over one day, she's walking by, she looks over at Pastor Simon and is like, look at this kid. Worthless. Look at this hope. Jesus, he's failing. How would I feel as his father? I'd be like, who are you? You don't get to say that kind of stuff in front of me. You know why? Because I'm his father. Can I remind you, you are not your own 
When you are in Christ, you've been purchased by the blood of Christ. You are God Almighty. And he's going to guard you, strengthen you, and protect you like his son. And therefore, you yourself are not allowed to say those kind of judgments without God's permission. Does that make sense? You're not yours. It's not for you to say that kind of stuff. When I heard that, I remember just bawling again even harder, thinking like, that's right. I have to all the more lean on what God thinks of me. And he's already told me that he loves me like a son. And then he's going to teach me to do better. He's going to teach me to fulfill his will. He's going to strengthen me when I fail. Like, and he's going he's gonna, to he's gonna transform me to what he wants me to be. Right? But for those of you who have ever judged yourself super hard, I want you to understand that judgment is for God. It's not even for you. Does that make sense? You don't have the authority to speak about yourself even in that way is what I'm saying. Now let's move forward. What I want you to see is that Asaph walks into the sanctuary of God. So thank goodness you guys are here and not at home. Because you guys are now being reminded God wants you to think like this. God wants you to see your life like this. Your world like this. And I want, you to, I want to show you what Asaph sees. So what does Asaph see? Let's take a look. First, in verse 17, look what he says. He says, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in a slippery place. You cast them down to the end. Sorry, you cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O oh Lord. When aroused, you will despise their form. Think about that. If you thought it was envious to be them, you only saw like this. God opens your eyes and says, look what's going to happen soon. Look what's going to happen for certain. Look what God is going to do to those who are arrogant, pompous, such indulgent individuals. You do recognize that scripture says there are people that God hates. Is it true that God loves everybody? Yes, scripture says God does not delight in the death even of the wicked. Why? Because God is just that crazy of a loving God. However, scripture says there are things I hate. Right? You guys remember that? There are seven things I hate. Lying tongues, false, you know, false witness, all that kind of stuff. And then he says, most of all, I hate the arrogant, the prideful, the one with lofty eyes, the one with lofty mouths. Scripture straight up says, like, humble yourselves. Because God gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the Wow. Think about that. Those people are like, look at all my stuff, right? Take a look at all my stuff. Come. It's like a museum, right? And then they sit there and they're pounding their chest. Look what I did. God says that right there, when you know that was not just you, when you don't give any thanks to God, when all you can see in your little worldview is yourself, I call it the, flex, the little boy flexing in his room, right? The little boy is in front of his mirror in his room. His tiny little room goes in there. It's like, I'm huge, right? Like, he's, he's just flexing like crazy. He goes outside and he realizes, like, oh, man. Like, I don't, I don't have anything. That should be the reality. But when people insist that they're so, so good in front of God, God says, I oppose you. You want to envy that guy who's being hostile to God Almighty? 
you want to envy that guy who God is saying, I am against him because of his pride? And surely I will destroy I mean, think about this. God sets, just imagine it because the, the, the Old Testament is so descriptive and you have to picture it. Imagine the prideful, arrogant guy with all his shoes, let's just say he has a million shoes or whatever it may be, on a crazy incline. It's like 50% or something, right? It's all oiled down. He's in there. All his shoes are just getting shot to the floor. And there's fire down there. And this guy's just barely gripping onto a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. He's just trying to crawl, but he's going all the way down. And then you realize, oh, shoot, I was envying that guy? No. That's not good. Right? This is the conclusion of Asaph after entering into the sanctuary of God. You know what else? Moving forward. So, of the things that I want you to see, A was you have to see God's end game. That's what I'm just describing right now, right? Of the things that you have to see in the sanctuary, you have to see God's end game because you realize the perspective of God is so much bigger than ours. But secondly, but secondly, what he does is he realizes now that he's looking at them and he realizes I was envying that, he examines his own heart. So take a look at verse 21. Go in your Bibles to verse 21 and it says, When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless. I was ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Right? Oh, man. Now he's getting really humble. And then he goes on to say, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand. With your counsel, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. That is the new perspective that Asaph is receiving. Again, I just met a bunch of you guys, and thank you for those of you who came over and introduced yourself. I just want to say I'm not good with names, but I do remember some of your names, okay? I don't know whether you're struggling today or not, but there is this truth. Those of you who have clung to the name of Jesus for your salvation, everything he says here is true of you. What I'm talking about is God is literally holding you up. That's why I was saying, like, this is great. Whoever chose, you know, Ruth... Thank you for choosing those songs. It is God who is holding you up. You are very much susceptible to be the very guy sliding down the slopes. We know in humility that could be any single one of us. But God is literally holding us on. And with his counsel, he's guiding us through another path. And what he's going to do is God is going to transform us. God is going to receive us in glory. That is every single one of our destination. Does that make sense? And then to sit there knowing you have this and then envy the world, you realize that doesn't make any sense at all. That means for a moment I was just like, wow, right? I didn't see. And he acknowledges that. God, I senseless. I was ignorant. I was like a beast. I was just impulsive. I just said stuff. I'm so sorry. And he's repenting. Likewise, we need to do the same thing. If you walk into the sanctuary, many times you get humbled and you realize you get exposed. The things that I wanted, oh, God, the things that I wanted were so small and it's just so futile compared to what you give me. Right? That's the truth. And then what's more, moving forward, take a look at the next section. He says, starting from verse 25, uh, he says this, whom... Have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are 
far from you will perish. You have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, and then look at this. If you highlight your Bibles, go ahead and do it now. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Do you see what he did? When he walked into the sanctuary, he might have before felt like he had nothing, but now he realized he has God. So you have to see who it is that you actually have. Right? Notice I didn't say, you know, count the, you know, count your blessings, see the silver lining, and think about all the blessings you have. That's not what I said. Right? Because if you do that, at some point you're gonna be like, yeah, my life still sucks, right? Like you you have to look at God and realize I have this person. If you realize the gospel, you realize I was an orphan child left to my own defenses, but now I have a father, right? That's the gospel. You have to realize I was isolated on my own. Remember, like Ephesians chapter 2 says, you're completely separate from the community. You're separate from the commonwealth of Israel. You had no hope. You had no God in this world. Before you were a stranger and an alien. What does he say? But now you've been brought to God in which we have through one spirit access to the Father. That's what you have. He realizes with God I have everything. I mean, have you ever considered even going to an orphan child and asking this child, like, what is it that you want? Would you like a bed of your own? They'll say yes. Would you like a fresh meal? They'll say yes. Would you like some toys to play with? They'll say yes. But then in comparison, would you rather have all of that I just said right now or would you rather have a father? What do you think the child will say? I mean, just play the entire scenario in your mind. Of course the father. Because with the father is everything. Without the father is nothing. Does that make sense? And so therefore for us, we have to likewise think of the exact same thing. When this author, Asaph, says... Whom have I in heaven but you beside you? I desire nothing on earth. That's exactly the way that we should feel. You are the greatest desire of my heart. And he says, you're my strength. You're my portion, my provision, my, my, my possessions, everything that I need. That's exactly the way we should feel. And I want, you, I want to be real, okay? So this is a big challenge to you guys. If what I'm saying right now doesn't convict you, and you're sitting in your chair thinking like, yeah, I've heard this before from Pastor Simon many times. Whoop-de-doo, I get it. Like, but you don't know how hard I have it. You don't know how my parents are divorced and they're always at each other's throat and there's so much anxiety in my life. You don't know how I've worked, worked, worked and I still can barely make it. You don't know how every time I go somewhere, people are just like kind of judging me. You don't know how hard it is. So whoop-de-doo, yeah, I have Jesus. Okay, I've heard that like a million times at church. If you are there, take a moment to pause because you may not be a believer. Why? Because the person who's come to God realizes they have their eyes open to see that beyond the circumstantial solution to your life, if you had a magic wand, right? If you had a magic wand. If God wanted to, he could have said, fine, snap of a finger, you have it. Amazing family with no fighting, sufficient income, no health problems, and everything you do touches, and you touch turns to gold. He could do that for you, okay? But I want you to think about this. How far must our hearts be 
to say I have the very uh, immense love of God who promises to share himself with you, his glory with you, his residence, so to speak, with you. Like that's our Christian promise. God saying, I will bring you into my kingdom is him saying, I'm bringing you home to me, right? The king of the universe is saying to you, I offer you myself. And then for us to sit and feel like, well, whoop de doo like, has he done anything for me yet? That means we don't get it. Right? That means we didn't see it. We didn't really see the promise that God has for us. And so my final exhortation to you is after seeing all that, we have to radically redefine what is prayer. Because that's what Asaph did. Asaph sat in the moment of almost stumbling. He walked into the sanctuary and he had his eyes open and he said, you know what? I am seeing afresh and you know what? The nearness of my God is my good. I could literally be sick with coronavirus. Is that the worst case scenario, worst fear? No, it is not. Being far from God is my worst fear. And on the flip side then, being near my God and having his love, having his holy presence, transforming me. That's to me my greatest good. That's to me my greatest comfort. That is the mechanism. That's the deciding point. That's the standard. If God is near, if God, he has, he is pleased and honored in my life, then life is good, right? Life is absolutely good. And I want to just give that challenge to you guys. You know, um, I've, I've heard, you know, people make strong decisions, like uh, not strong, but hard decisions in life. Just for example, you know, people who have to decide whether to move, people who have to decide like, oh man, should I quit this job? Um, sports at, uh, athletes who have to decide, do I leave this team when they're up for free agency? You know what they say, typically? They say, you know, uh, LeBron's got to do what, what's best for LeBron. Like, that's what he says all the time, right? Um, you know, Steve's got to do what's best for Steve. Okay? Funny thing is I'm going to say the same thing for you. You should do what's best for you, right? But we just have to redefine that stuff. We regularly use our human eyes to think, to think that all this stuff is so good. But we are being challenged today, just like Asaph would say, God, he himself in his very presence is our strength. He himself is our portion. Everything outside of him is actually the opposite of blessing. It's a curse. It's a weight. It's a hindrance. But to us, the nearness of our Lord is our absolute good. Let's take a moment to pray. Our God, we want to thank you. And the reason why we thank you is because, Lord, you freely offer yourself to us. You give us your truth. You give us the wisdom and guidance that we need. You give us the church. You lead us spiritually. And all that leading ultimately leads to you. And most of all, in your free giving, we recognize you have freely given of your son, Jesus Christ. What incredible sacrifice to, to draw us to yourself. Lord, we're astounded by that. And we just thank you from the bottom of our hearts. I do pray that if there be anybody struggling in here with a sense of meaninglessness, with a sense of disappointment, I pray, Father Lord, that they would turn to you alone, the God of all, who alone can satisfy every, every person in this room. 
for we want to thank you and praise you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.